0: Here is the surprising first law of search. Any effective search engine will, sooner or later, be corrupted. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the miracle that is search. But first, here's a message from our sponsor.
1: If you're looking for a great volunteer opportunity, Schoolhouse.World
0: is a nonprofit online educational platform that provides free tutoring to children from over 100 countries. Volunteers range from high school students to retired professionals. Founded during the pandemic by Sal Khan of Khan Academy fame, Schoolhouse.World helps learners build confidence, find community and pay it forward. Search is, in fact, a miracle. Just about anything in the world can be found just about instantly from the comfort of your chair or, if you're standing outside with a phone, just using your fingertips. That was impossible to comprehend 30 years ago. 50 years ago, it belonged in a science fiction book. But search, search is fascinating because search is actually an engine of attention, and attention leads to money. And in our capitalist-based culture, money changes the culture. Quietly, day by day, search has been changing our culture, and we might not even have noticed. This is a collection of a whole bunch of random thoughts that add up to a simple alternative and maybe some insight about how our culture has changed. The first thought is this, smart people, smart people I know, technical people, sometimes confuse search with browsing, they're really different. You have a browser on your computer and a browser on your phone, maybe it's called Safari or Brave or Chrome or Firefox. This is software, software that was originated by Netscape, but it's software that allows you to convert the code that is behind the World Wide Web and put things on your screen that you understand. It's understandable that people confuse it with search because the winners in search have invested billions and billions of dollars to also build browsers. The biggest winner, of course, is Google. I first encountered Google when I was one of five vice presidents at Yahoo. At the time, Yahoo called itself a search engine, but they weren't. They were a directory. That there were more than 1,000 people in one big room, librarians running the operation painstakingly going through the entire internet one link at a time and sorting pages into categories, sort of like the Dewey Decimal System. And if they decided your page was better than somebody else's page, it moved up. And if it moved up, you got more traffic. And traffic, traffic has always been the lifeblood of the internet that everybody who's investing in the internet is paying attention to traffic because some percentage of that traffic turns into money. So Yahoo decided to keep building and building this directory. At one point, there were 183 links on the homepage of Yahoo. And as Yahoo grew, it became basically the entire internet the way AOL was the internet before the internet. That their goal was to get people to come and to stay more clicks per visit, and everything they built into their directory led to more Yahoo-based services so people would stay, because they knew that the more you stayed, the more you would click and the more they would make. And this little upstart called Google came along, and they only had two links on their homepage. And the reason is they built something to get people to leave, not to get them to stay. And they would charge a toll. And the toll they would charge would be ads that appeared right next to the search results. Because the pitch to the advertiser was, well, they're leaving anyway, maybe they'll leave and go to your site instead. A small aside about how Google's brilliant ad model works. Google didn't have much of a sales force at the beginning. And in fact, their sales force still doesn't really matter that much. Because they're not selling brand advertising as much as direct marketing advertising that you can measure. And the deal was really simple. Someone's going to do a search on a term. Do you want to buy the ads next to that term or not? And at the beginning, those terms were bought for a nickel, a dime, 15 cents, almost nothing. And they were usually bought by a competitor. So someone Googled themselves. Don't do it too much. You might go blind. Someone Googled themselves and saw that their competitor was running an ad. So they bid more to take that spot back. It was brilliant because not only was it self-service and low cost for Google, but it spread because the very people who could buy the ad were busy Googling themselves. Well, here's what happens. An auction is now being held. How much are you willing to pay for this person who showed intent in this moment to click on an ad? Let's say it's worth $9 to you to get someone to click over to your site. $9 Nine dollars because every new customer is worth a hundred, and one out of ten people who click convert to being a customer. At nine bucks, you're fine. You're not delighted, but you can afford it. So how much would you be willing to bid? Probably eight dollars and ninety nine cents, at least. Which means that of all the profit going to all the websites when there is an auction, people are willing to bid a penny less, which means that like the landlord, who owns Main Street, most of the profit isn't going to the person who's running the ad. It's going to the person who's selling the ad. And from the start, this ad idea was absolutely brilliant. Bill Gross was one of the pioneers behind it, but Google took it and modified it and made it their own. And it is an extraordinary engine of profit and they have used that profit to defend search ever since. Why is it, for example, that Apple doesn't have a search engine? If you're on Safari and you're looking for something, you know what you're going to use to look for it? Probably Google, because Google pays Apple billions and billions of dollars not to build a search engine. So search, search changing the culture. A friend wanted a wedding cake, not just any wedding cake, A wedding cake based on a Latin American quinceanera cake, which is usually used for a coming out party for 16-year-olds. Where to find one of those? Well, thanks to search, they were able to find one about seven neighborhoods over from where we live in less than five minutes. This bakery exists because search allows them to exist. But search isn't just Google. Let's think about Yelp, for example. In many ways, Yelp is a better search engine than Google because it is much more focused. Tell me where you are. Tell me the category of what you're looking for, and I will find you one of just a handful sometimes of options, maybe a 100, maybe a 1,000. But because it is limited, because not just anybody can have a Yelp listing, you need to have a business people can go to, Yelp returns really interesting search results. Consider my friend Junior. Junior is an appliance repair person, and yet he doesn't have a fancy franchise, he doesn't have an office, he doesn't even have a truck. Instead, he has the highest rating in all of Yelp for appliance repair in the Bronx. And as a result, if you do the search for appliance repair and are smart enough to sort by rating, there he is. And you text him, and he comes to your house in a little Toyota Camry and he fixes what's in your house right away. No hassle, not a lot of money, and he moves on to the next gig. His business could not have existed in the days of the Yellow Pages. The thing about search is it's a form of intention. It's a way of announcing to the world that you're looking for something, and that's why Amazon makes billions of dollars from search, not from the things you're buying, but from selling people ads right next to the searches you are choosing to do. One of the most profitable publishing ventures in history was the Yellow Pages. The Yellow Pages is a search engine for the real world. What better place to run an ad for your pizza place or car repair than someplace where people are looking for pizza or car repair? So one of the things that we have to keep in mind as we think about search and how it gets corrupted is how visible is it when somebody is paying to game the system because no one cared that people were gaming the system in the yellow pages you could tell a big ad was bigger than a small ad in fact you were attracted to the big ad because it meant that the company was healthier it was a form of signaling go to the people with the big ad and they're less likely it would seem to go out of business but in online search, it's a lot more subtle. It's a lot more difficult to tell who is paying and who is paying who. But back to the idea of Google. When Bing came out from Microsoft, it was supposed to be an alternative search engine. And at the time, most people who used it said, I like Google better. And yet, in blind studies where you just cover up the logo at the top and conceal where the search engine results are coming from, people like Bing results just as much, if not more, than Google results. So why is it when I add back the logos and the typeface, people like Google results better? It's because Google showed up at exactly the right time to make a huge number of people feel powerful, that Google got out of the way. They connected people to what they were looking for. And they did this at the very same time they were making billions and billions of dollars. Not a year, but every few months. Because each one of those searches is a category in and of itself for advertising revenue. And Google didn't stop there. They kept building up more and more things around their search results to increase their profitability. If a competitor came along, they did whatever they could to keep that competitor from siphoning off search. Another aside about online search is this. When there are lots of different search engines, they're gonna use different algorithms to figure out who to put at the top. But when there's only one search engine that's winning, when they have 80 or 90% market share, well then everybody who's trying to game that system has an incentive to play by one set of SEO, search engine optimization rules, that they will bend their site, their entire business model, to please that one search engine. We all would benefit from diversity in search because if there's lots of different ways that people are finding websites, then websites have to be just good, not good for a search engine, but good for everybody. And so one of the reasons to root for Bing and DuckDuckGo and Ecosia is that as the market share of this second search engine grows, it gets harder for a site to game both of them. And so it creates a dynamic where we end up being more likely to find sites that we are actually looking for simply because there are multiple search engines pointing us to where we seek to go. Google has not liked blogs very much because blogs are sort of anathema to search. You don't need a search engine to subscribe to a blog, and then it arrives day after day after day. So Google built Google Reader, the best blog reader, and lots and lots of blog readers moved their reading habits to Google Reader, and then Google shut it down, leaving blog readers to go to their search engine to type in what they were looking for. But I'm not here to rant about this. I'm here to talk about the fact that we have not really noticed how much power and how much money go to whoever is controlling search. And I began by pointing out that search will eventually be corrupted. It will be corrupted in one of a few ways. The first one, the most common one, is that once companies realize that search is their lifeblood, they will change what they do to get more than their fair share of search. And so, SEO gets hacked. If you've tried to look up a recipe lately, what you may notice is it begins with paragraph after paragraph of stories and photos all about the person who wrote the recipe and their family and everything else before they get to the recipe. Why do they do that? They do it because the SEO for recipes tells them that they have to. Because maybe they're looking at time spent on site I'm not exactly sure why, but it's spread. Or consider the locksmiths, in quotation marks, who pretend to be a local locksmith, and when you find them via search looking for a local locksmith, then hold your inquiry hostage and sell it to the highest bidder who is actually a locksmith. Or consider all of the websites that race to the bottom trying to look like they have what you want, but they really don't. It's a bait and switch. They're working to hustle the search engine to get more than their fair share. Another way search engines can become corrupt is when the people who work at the search engine, and please don't believe it's some magical algorithm. The last time I checked, more than 3,000 people were working full-time at Google to feed information in to their algorithm to decide who wins search. So What could happen is someone who works at a search engine could freelance on the side or simply inject their point of view, changing the search results. And the third thing which is happening more and more is it can corrupt itself. It can decide to send you when you do a search, not to the thing you would be best served by, but to the site or to the link that would best serve them. And because there's so much money on the table, this becomes part of the deal. So we've gotten a great deal from search for a long time. It's free, after all. We trade attention for wisdom and insight. And most of all, that page or that restaurant or that appliance repair person we were looking for. But like all things that are off to a good start, it doesn't last forever. So one of the things to keep in mind is that Google in particular is harvesting an enormous amount of of information about you. And they're using that information ostensibly to serve you better by putting up ads along the way that reflect places you've been in the past. But it makes a lot of people uncomfortable. So there's a website called DuckDuckGo, another crazy name brought to you by the internet. DuckDuckGo is a search engine that doesn't track anything. It's super careful with your information and it doesn't use it for you or against you. A lot of people have switched to DuckDuckGo. It's a fast-going search engine. It uses Bing to power it. So they don't have to do a lot of the technical back end. They simply have to isolate you from Bing and wherever that information is going to go. About a year and a half ago, I discovered a different search engine, one called Ecosia. And when I started this episode of the podcast, all it was going to be was a simple commercial for Ecosia, because I think it's that cool. But I decided to fill you in on a lot of what I know about search engines, because I was there. But before I tell you about Ecosia, I want to tell you about how Yahoo originally won. Yahoo had competitors when they started, competitors like Lycos and AltaVista. Well, part of the reason they won is they had an easy to spell, and easy to remember name. This cannot be overemphasized. But the other reason they won is that Stanford kicked them off the university's computers. The two guys who started Yahoo, David and Jerry, did it as a school project, but it was so popular, it was really slowing down Stanford's computers. So they gave the Yahoo guys a little bit of notice and then they had to get off campus. Well, it turned out my friend Lisa knew some people at Netscape and Netscape had some extra servers available. So Yahoo got hosted on Netscape servers for a little while. And then, in an enormous stroke of luck, the folks at Netscape added a little search bar to the top of the Netscape browser. Guess which search engine they pointed to? Well, they wanted one that wouldn't crash. They wanted one that they knew could handle the traffic. Well, they happened to be hosting Yahoo. So boom, there it was. This was not corrupt. They didn't get paid to do this. And it was one of the last times that money didn't change hands when we looked at Search. So Yahoo eventually moved off to its own servers, which is a whole project unto itself. But back to my story about Ecosia. Search uses power. It's actually extremely difficult technically, way beyond my understanding, to build Racks and racks of computers. So when you type in something, I don't know, David Curhan, into a search engine, it finds what you are looking for. Multiply that times billions, and you can see that an enormous amount of power is needed to power search. And Google, as the dominant player, uses an enormous amount of power. Some of it is renewable, a lot of it isn't, but they are a net negative on our environment. They're trying, but not nearly hard enough to make up for the damage they're doing. Well, almost two years ago, a year and a half, I switched my search engine to something called Ecosia. You can find it at thecarbonalmanac.org slash search. And what I did was one time clicked one button and it changed which search engine my browser would go to every time I did a search. And here's the thing. Every time I do 48 searches, Ecosia, a nonprofit, a B Corp, based in Germany, every time I do about 50 searches, Akosia plants a tree. They don't plant a tree in their backyard. They have an entire team of tree planting people, and they go around the world planting trees where they're most likely to thrive and do some good. And I'm here to tell you that I've planted hundreds and hundreds of trees so far, and so can you for free. So that's why... The Carbon Almanac teamed up with Acosia to make it easy for people to switch their search engine. If you go to thecarbonalmanac.org search, you can switch. You'll also be using Bing. One small aside as I wrap this up, one person I persuaded to switch had been using DuckDuckGo, but then they switched to Ecosia. And she came back to me about a week later, she said, ah, I switched back. I said, why? She said, because the search results on DuckDuckGo were better. I said, did you know that they were the same? That DuckDuckGo and Ecosia use exactly the same search engine behind the scenes? Oh, yeah, there's a lot of placebos. There's even placebos in search. Anyway, I've ranted. The only upside for me is knowing that you are using a search engine that is faster, that respects your privacy more, that isn't cluttered with ads, that doesn't track you around the internet and that plants trees. So give it a try. If you don't like it, I totally get it. You can go back to anything you were using before. But I just wanted to rant for a minute about the invisible power of search and just how much money is involved. It's a lot. It adds up. Thanks for paying attention. We'll see you next time. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't
1: wait to see what you've got going on. Hey Seth, it's Maria. Hey Seth, my name's Kyle. Greetings Seth, this is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi Seth, Alicia from Charleston here. Hi Seth, this is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi Seth, warm greetings from Curacao. Hey Seth, my name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey Seth, this is Rex. Hey Seth, hi, this is Vasilis from Greece.
0: Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is...
1: And that completes my question.
0: As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, I hope, you'll visit akimbo.link. That's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K. And click the appropriate button. Two questions this time. They're bigger than they sound. Here we go.
1: I really liked your discussion about collaboration in terms of telemedicine. Uh, One of the other aspects of it that I've been looking into
0: is the fact that um, rural hospitals in lots of parts of the country are closing
1: down from lack of business, and using telemedicine uh, could basically offload a lot of the medical calls that are happening in large metropolitan areas uh, to these more rural areas and keep the services alive for the local populations. The challenge I'm wondering about, and you might have some ideas on, is how do we get insurance companies and large health companies to recognize the value and the potential of telemedicine as it relates to um, leveraging underutilized hospitals? Thanks again for what you do. Bye.
0: Thank you for this, Rob. Thank you for thinking strategically. Thank you for caring about communities. And it really tees up an interesting question, which I'll start with. Do people who work for insurance companies, are they evil. And if they are, were they evil before they got there? And I hope we can agree that they're not evil and that going to work for an insurance company doesn't suddenly make you a bad person. However, and it's a big however, people who work for an insurance company have a boss. And their boss has a boss. And their boss has a boss. And that structure, the culture of work, changes what we keep track of. And what they keep track of in insurance companies are two things. One, how did we used to do it yesterday? That the insurance industry has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years, and it is inherently conservative. You get ahead in the insurance business not by doing crazy new ideas. You get ahead by sticking with a status quo that's working. And the second thing that people ask is, Is this going to increase or decrease our claims situation? In other words, is it cheaper? Not, is it cheaper for all patients all the time? Not, will this lead to a general increase in health among the population? No, it's will honoring this kind of practice, this kind of expense, overall create more claims that cost us more money or fewer claims that cost us less money. Because we know, for example, that lifestyle changes, changes in the way we exercise and how we eat and going for walks and how often we see a doctor and prenatal care and all those other things will increase the effectiveness of medicine in our country that will make people healthier. But insurance companies, though they have played with these ideas, certainly couldn't be considered as going all in. And there are a couple of reasons. One is it's scary. It's about changing the infrastructure, doing business in a whole new way. And second, if you began by saying, we're going to pay you to eat vegetables, we're not going to hassle you ever about things like prenatal care. We're going to lobby and work hard to do things like tax cigarettes. Well, those things are going to cost a lot of money at first. And they're going to cost you money, even though they're not helping just the people who are your subscribers. So those things happen gradually, if at all. So the pitch to the insurance company about telemedicine is not, this is better for the rural hospital. This is better for health in general. The pitch is, yes, there are parts of this that are new, but the people you're giving money to, the claims you're paying out, it's already going to people you are paying through claims. So there'll be no giant shifts there. In addition, the kind of people who are putting in claims right now for $10,000 or $20,000, we can show you, will be putting in claims for $1,000 or $2,000 because they're getting the same sorts of care for the same sorts of illnesses, just in a dramatically more efficient way. And they're not going to go for those treatments more often. They're simply going to get better. Would you like to try a pilot program for that, or should I put you down as saying, no, we don't even want to know about it. That's how I would bring it to an insurance company. Thank you for giving me a chance to rant about this. I'm sure my answer is incomplete and partially incorrect.
1: Hey, Seth, this is John from Chicago. Uh, First and foremost, your podcast makes my day every time I listen to it. It influences my overall perspective and just really, really great work. Thank you so much. Um, At any rate, I lead a creative agency where I feel we've figured out culture and have an incredible team of passionate folks um, that honestly I feel lucky to work with uh, every day. Um, When we were smaller and growing, our model was pretty much to do the best work possible, regardless of the project size. something that, in fact, we still believe in today and still do. Um, your recent, uh, cast on enforcement and enrollment really struck a chord on a particular paradox, uh, that we are currently looking at, which is, you know, how to do the best work possible versus margin, uh, when working with fixed budgets and especially with creative teams, um, as I'm sure you can imagine approaching everything with the same passion and effort, regardless of budget can have an impact on scalability and profitability. Um, so, you know, going through kind of a trend of what, got us here, uh, might not get us there. One of the things that we've thought to focus on is you not totally change your mentality, but start having budget as part of the conversation, uh, with creative teams. Um, we believe, uh, and kind of proved it out with a few tests that enforcement is not going to be the way, uh, meaning telling folks they have X amount of hours to accomplish Y, and then hoping that something good comes out of that. Um, you know, Honestly, we see that as a you know, path to destroying our culture. Uh, so enrollment really kind of seems to be the key. And uh, I'm curious on your thoughts for motivating creativity and profitability within an organization. Thanks for all you do. Would love to hear your thoughts.
0: Thank you, John. And congratulations on the growth of your agency. I think that there is a little bit of a framing problem here. Several parts that are framed in ways that are going to get in your way. I want to highlight them, not because of your agency, but because in general, I think we often make these mistakes. One of these things is the phrase, the best work possible. I'm sorry, you're not doing the best work possible. You're not doing the best work possible because you're not spending five or 10 years on each client project, because you're not having George Clooney do the voiceovers, because you're not having some academy award-winning cinematographer do the footage, and on and on and on and on. You're always doing the best work possible within reason. You might not say within reason, but you've decided what reason is. And within that boundary of time and money, you've decided that your culture is about doing the best possible work in those boundaries. But leaving it unsaid is really dangerous because now you've limited what sort of clients you can take in. And you've made people who work on smaller projects believe that bringing, quote, passion and effort to the smaller projects is somehow slumming it because it's only the right-sized projects that matter. This is nonsense. Your culture is about mutual respect, about doing work within a set of boundaries that you can point to with pride. And the thing is, how we approach our boundaries determines what sort of professional we are. Don't take projects if you can't respect the boundaries. If you can't imagine how amazing work that you are proud of could be done for $10,000 for this client, don't take the gig. That what makes a problem a problem is it has boundaries to it. The boundaries are a feature, not a bug. You're not allowed to say, oh, this would be great if you would only pay us more money. Because the client says back to you, you would be great If you would do it with pride for the amount of money you said, it would cost. And that's what makes this work interesting to begin with. The boundaries of how many characters go in a tweet. The boundaries of how long a movie in the movie theater needs to be. That when a director becomes a prima donna, they start to whine about the boundaries. They start to make movies that are unwatchable because they take the boundaries out. I'm in favor of putting the boundaries in. If you have a budget, make the budget. If you have a deadline, make the deadline. That the culture is not, quote, best work possible for any amount of money or any amount of time. It's we're professionals and we love boundaries. We do the best work possible within the boundaries we already agreed to. If you can reframe it that way, if you can celebrate and make heroes out of the people who did great work with tiny, tiny room for error, well, then the culture is going to change, isn't it? Thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you next time. It's not too late. Hey, it's Seth. About 16 years ago, I wrote my first post about climate change. And since then, every single metric has gotten worse but it's not too late. What we need to do is shift it from a me problem to a we problem. And my new project is not my new project, it's our new project. More than 300 volunteers from 40 countries around the world have spent the last bunch of months putting together the Carbon Almanac. It's not coming out till June, but you, my loyal Akimbo listeners, I wanted you to see it and hear about it. First, check out thecarbonalmanac.org for all the details. Thank you for caring enough to make a difference.